Hello, everybody. Strawberry Sequoia, and you're listening to The Mary Jane Experience. I've got Stephen Sital here. He is going to talk to us today about cannabis and veterinary practices. Stephen, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So you are a registered veterinary technician. We're one of the first veterinary cannabis counselor specialists in the country. You're an educator and exotic specialist, which sounds awesome. <laughs> you have quite the stacked resume. So I wanted to start out with how did you find this particular path and why is it important to you? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're absolutely right. Uh, I, have, I have quite the, the resume and, and things behind my name, uh, which I'm really proud of and excited about because I, I try to share all of that knowledge with everybody um, that I come across. Um, you know, I, I think in medicine and especially on the nursing side of things, it, it there was this mentality before with um, other generations of kind of hoarding that information. And I'm all about <laughs> uh, dispersing that information so uh, everyone can be just as, as great and, and elevate patient care. Um, as far as getting into the whole cannabis uh, side of things, so um, a couple of my certifications are specifically related to anesthesia and pain management. And I have to be honest in that I was very um, Western-minded when it came to medicine and utilizing drugs and particular molecules that are, are created by pharmaceutical companies um, to, to treat pain um, and anesthetize animals. Um, and then just from recreational experience with, with cannabis in particular, and then some medicinal uses, I thought, you know, this would be really good for some of those palliative care uh, cases where the animal, you know, has terminal cancer or is just very, very old and losing weight and doesn't have that muscle mass because they're not getting enough calories or exercising enough because they're so painful from things like osteoarthritis. So, I started um, introducing uh, cannabis products, uh, mostly hemp-based products, uh, into practice. And uh, what ended up happening was um, I would have these really sick animals, and uh, the owners were interested in euthanizing their animal at a set date. Uh, because their, their quality of life had decreased so much. Um, and anyway, we started using these, these different products and uh, that euthanasia date would pass. And I would say, hey, to the owner, like, you know, I thought we were going to be doing X on this date. And they said, you know, the quality, quality of life for my pet has improved so significantly with these, these particular cannabinoid molecules that we're, we're not interested in doing that anymore because it's, it's working so great. And then I thought, well, huh, you know, um, if it's working so well in these, these kind of terminal cases, let's bring this on to non-terminal cases uh, because I felt a little bit more comfortable with the dosing and got just more comfortable with, with the practice of using cannabinoids as medicine. Um, and again, see the, the same great success and, and interest uh, with owners um, and, uh, it just, it snowballed from there. Just, I, I dove nice. deep in after that. Yeah. 
Wow. I, I love that. I love how it started very almost organically just to test it out and really is effective. So that's cool. So I guess for those in the veter- maybe that aren't in the veterinary world or are just unfamiliar, can you explain to us the different types of cannabis or hemp or what, whatever products you use or can be used and just the differences between them? Sure. So I think we all understand, especially this audience, understand the difference between marijuana or cannabis products versus um, hemp products and, and the differences in the amount of, of Delta 9 THC in those particular products. Um, and I think both have a, a, a place um, in, a, in certain disease processes and in certain patients. Um, I will say I, I largely use hemp-based products and I, I do work for a company called Elvet Sciences as the Director of Education and Development. And we have a hemp-based product uh, that has undergone um, some clinical studies at Cornell University and, and uh, now University of Florida and the Royal Vet College. Uh, we're going to be starting some projects up there, but uh, a majority of products, at least in veterinary medicine, are, are seeming to come from hemp um, because animals seem to be more sensitive to Delta-9 THC. They, they get too high or they, they get uh, what's called static ataxia uh, from higher levels of Delta-9 THC. And What's interesting about that is uh, I would love to utilize more of that in practice and, and recommend that to practitioners um, in the veterinary space. The problem is uh, we just have this, this stigma against anything cannabis, whether it's hemp or marijuana, um, still alive and well in the veterinary field. And veterinarians are, are very cautious creatures um, I would say even more so than, than human practitioners. Um, and it's, it's been an interesting hurdle to introduce these products. So, um, so far, hemp-based products seem to be the least scary for practitioners to, to kind of swallow um, and is, is largely um, the, the biggest component in our, in our industry. Interesting. Yeah, that was something I wanted, you mentioned before the interview, and I wanted to bring up is the stigma in the veterinary world, and that it's perhaps even worse than the human stigma. Can you just expand a little bit on how the veterinarian community views cannabis? Sure. So in the veterinary community, uh, one of the, the biggest complications we see uh, when it comes to cannabis in general, whether it's, it's being used as a medicine or not, is THC toxicity. And while we know that LD50 or the lethal dose for a dog, a cat, any sort of animal is extremely, extremely high, we still do see these animals come in with some pretty severe symptoms. And that has really perpetuated this, this stigma against anything cannabis. Um, you know, when we start talking about uh, other cannabinoids like CBD or some of the other minor ones, the question I get all the time is, oh my God, are they going to get high? And I'm just <laughs> like, no, that they are not going to get high. And, and with these certain ratios, we're not going to expect to see any of those, those high effects that we would see with a lot of THC. So there's just a lack of understanding of uh, the different types of cannabinoids. There is absolutely no... Um, uh, curriculum in veterinary schools or technician schools that cover the endocannabinoid system. 
or utilizing these products. I think we're going to start to see that change, but they have this whole receptor system that we've ignored for decades and uh, they're scared. Um, so that, yeah. that plays into the, the stigma. And then the other problem that we have is um, organized veterinary medicine. So uh, like the, the, the human side of things, they have the American Medical, uh, Medical Association. We have the American Veterinary Medical Association, the AVMA. And the AVMA, until recently, um, had a pretty uh, hard stance against uh, any sort of cannabis products uh, for animals. And it wasn't until recently we started to see their, their position evolve a little bit. So I, I do give them credit now, but they, they terrified a lot of veterinarians. Um, they were responsible for halting uh, clinical research at universities in animals. Uh, it was that extreme. Uh, so it, it set us back, uh, some of these, these biases. Definitely. You bring up a great point with research and it's something that just is so difficult on the human side as well. You know, politics just shackling research in cannabis so that we can't have this good information that we need to know what does this do? What's like the efficacy? Um, and so I, I'm guessing that it's the state of research is, is not quite there yet on the veterinary side as well. Well, it's interesting. Um, one of the, the things that, that was, was being spread and perpetuated is there is no research, uh, which kind of is, is a huge trigger for me because when you actually go to PubMed or you actually spend time trying to dig up research on cannabinoids, again, just getting away from just, just THC or just CBD, there's over 23,000 studies on these different receptor systems, these different major and minor cannabinoids, terpenes, uh, PK studies, PD studies, all of these things. There's over 23,000 published uh, uh, references when it comes to cannabinoids or cannabis in general. And that expands to over 25 different species being uh, utilized in these different research models, uh, from insects to mollusks, to uh, laboratory um, mice and rats, to dogs and cats, and even primates. So there is a lot of information out there. Um, but what, what ends up happening, at least is, as far as the interpretation of these studies or um, getting these studies in the hands of veterinarians, they largely say, oh, well, this is preclinical research. This was in a rodent model. This was in, in X, or this wasn't a clinical efficacy study. And while that is true, we also have to understand for a majority of medications we utilize in veterinary medicine, it's all off-label anyway. And there's maybe one or two studies to actually support uh, safe and effective use of, of a lot of the traditional pharmaceutical drugs that we use in veterinary medicine. So again, it's just that lack of understanding. Uh, that's that example that I just shared about um, only having one or two studies for traditional pharmaceutical drugs. That's an argument I bring up quite a bit when I'm, I'm trying to educate uh, practitioners on safe and effective use of, of cannabis type products. Uh, and then they sit back and they're like, wow, I guess, I guess you're right. Like, this is all off-label use or, you know, there isn't really studies. This is just historically what we've done forever. And I'm like, see, you're using a product you have no science for when here I have 45 studies on, on uh, the, the uses of things like CBD or THC for uh, clinical symptoms related to a certain disease process. And they're like, oh, 
that's that's surprising. I'm like, yeah. So let's let's stop perpetuating uh, some of those lies that you've been taught. Wow, it's it's just so interesting to hear it from that perspective. Since we're always talking about the human perspective on this podcast, that it's so stigmatized even in the animal world that people won't even look at the research. They just totally say, oh, there isn't even any," without yeah. even diving in. Crazy. They, they, hear that, they hear that from their colleague or their other vet friend, and then they actually they don't actually take the time to look, um, and it just keeps repeated, being repeated and repeated, and uh, we don't make any progress. Um, what I am really proud of now is uh, a lot of veterinary conferences, professional conferences like uh, human uh, medical doctors and nurses go to for continuing education credits are actually including. Um, uh, cannabis talks uh, now. So I, th I think this year I'm doing 24 uh, uh, cannabis talks at some of these major veterinary wow. conferences. Last year I did 31. So it is growing every year. And uh, there's even a, a veterinary cannabis specific conference that's organized by Dr. Kasara Andre from veterinarycannabis.org, where it's nothing but cannabis related topics uh, in animals for two days, which is really fun. That does sound fun. We'll have to come and cover that event. <laughs> um, I have to, out of curiosity, ask you, and I don't know how much you know about this, but you mentioned that there are studies all the way down to insects. You, oh, yeah. What, um, what kind of information do we have related to cannabis and insects? The insect thing is really interesting. Uh, I... I love receptor theory. So those are those little things that actually utilize these molecules and, and tell your body how to work, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in insects, it's interesting. So I was, I was researching uh, the CB1 and the CB2 receptor, looking for its ortholog or, or where it genetically came from way down in evolution. And, and we start to see the development of these particular receptors, these G-coupled protein receptors in lesser species. Um, and what we see is we see these, the formation of these receptors that are, are receptive to phytocannabinoids in things such as sea hairs and other types of mollusks. But then what we don't end up seeing is these uh, receptors uh, forming and sticking around in insects. So they only create minor endogenous cannabinoids, but they don't have the same receptor system as mammals or um, uh, higher species that, that utilize uh, these endocannabinoids and can then utilize phytocannabinoids. So we don't see uh, an, an ECS really in insects, uh, which is kind of interesting. That is interesting. And for anybody that's not aware of the endocannabinoid system, can you explain a little bit how, about how cannabis works in, in the body um, and if there is any difference between the endocannabinoid system in humans versus animals? Sure. So the endocannabinoid system in general is a, a set of, of receptors, largely the CB1 and the CB2 receptor. There's arguably a number three. It's a G-coupled protein receptor number 55, but it is also receptive to other molecules. So it's, it's not going to be classified as a classic ECS receptor, but we have these, these specific uh, receptors that are trying to create 
homeostasis and, and balance within our, our own physiology in our bodies. And I think it's important to remember when a human or an animal goes to the doctor uh, and we give medication or we do an operation or we give IV fluids or, or, or whatnot, we're trying to assist the body in healing itself. We're trying to get the body back in that, that homeostatic state. Um, we're not necessarily um, curing things. You know, there are medications that are gonna kill my, uh, uh, microbes and certain viruses, but we're really reliant still on the body being able to fight these things alongside the medication. And so what these receptor systems do is constantly activate this, this homeostatic regulator within our own physiology. Uh, is, is that, does that make sense enough for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a basic understanding already, so hopefully that makes sense to everybody, but I, I think it's pretty clear. So. Awesome. And as far as the, the endocannabinoid system differing from, from people, it doesn't differ that much. The big difference that we do see is the, um, the distribution of these specific receptors in different tissues. So we do see a lot more of these ECS receptors in the central nervous system, so in the brain. So that's why we think that dogs and cats can be so sensitive to, to, to Delta 9 THC and get, get high so quickly. Um, <laughs> So as far as the physiology of it in, in animals, it's pretty much the same, but the distribution of these receptors is different in, in different species. Um, and they're in higher and lower concentrations throughout the body, which is really the only difference between humans and, and our animal friends. Very cool. I love that, that we're, we are very similar to our furry friends in so many strange ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if we're talking about sort of the ailments that cannabis products can be used for, you talked about pain a little bit earlier. What are some of the other problems that can potentially be solved using these means? Sure. So right now in the literature, we, we technically only have one clinical study uh, using a hemp-based product um, uh, in dogs for osteoarthritis, so a chronic pain model. Uh, with that said, we have several studies uh, in the works um, for different things uh, and, and plenty of anecdotal evidence and, and um, experience with a lot of the same conditions that we are trying to utilize these molecules for in humans. So. Definitely acute pain is one of them. Uh, anxiety is one of them. Uh, seizures, we have two great studies going on right now. We have one out of Colorado State University and we have one out of the University of, of Florida with Dr. Joe Washlog's lab. Uh, we have uh, interest in cancer. So we have one completed in vitro study um, and we have an in vivo study uh, with uh, utilizing these different molecules for cancer patients to hopefully slow down or even kill cancer uh, cells. And I think it, it goes without saying, we know that cannabis um, and, and hemp products are definitely good for some of the symptoms related to chemotherapy or even radiation. So we know we, know we have good benefits there, but we also want to test to see, hey, what kind of formulas can we use to actually kill some of these cancer cell uh, 
cells in, in animals as well. So uh, basically everything that we see in humans, we also are seeing in animals. That's awesome. I, I'm excited. It seems like a really exciting time to be involved in this kind of work. A lot changing all the time and finding out new things. So, um, and another question related to that is just, you know, are you starting to see advantages of cannabis, much like we're seeing, you know, for, for human patients where there's, where they're finding out cannabis is, is useful for say cancer and its advantage is that you don't have to do chemo anymore and you're not sick. And, and so I, I guess I'm just wondering, are you finding a lot of advantages over traditional methods or is this just sort of an alternative medicine right now, something else to try? I think both examples are, are relevant in veterinary medicine. So when we have a certain population of pet owners that want to use cannabis in lieu of traditional pharmaceuticals. And then we have a, a, a population of pet owners that want to use it in conjunction. Um, and then we, we have kind of that mix in between. And I think both are appropriate. Um, uh, in my experience so far, talking to clients, the ones that you know, wanted to stay on traditional medications and add this as an adjunctive therapy, what ends up happening is it works so well for them that they start um, uh, decreasing traditional pharmaceuticals on their own. Uh, I mean, I, I can't recommend doing that, but it happens. And uh, then they come back for a recheck and they're like, you know, uh, uh, Fido hasn't been on, on this non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or, or this traditional anti-seizure medication. Uh, since X, uh, because it seems like these products are working so well. And we kind of, you know, look at them and scratch our head and say, well, you didn't necessarily follow our advice, but I'm glad it's working. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> uh, we, we do see both uh, scenarios often. Very cool. You know, it's, it's great to hear that people feel comfortable enough to at least start experimenting with it. I know we're seeing a ton of CBD products come onto the market just as far as like get your pet some CBD treats and things like that. So I think people are getting more comfortable with it. Yeah, they, they certainly are. And, and, you know, I do want to put a word of caution out there for all these things coming to market. It is really important for pet owners to do their due diligence um, in, in researching the product that they're going to use. Um, you know, has this product been tested, which I would say a majority of them haven't, uh, as far as uh, safety and efficacy in an in a actual animal model. Um, and then certainly, just like we, we tell human um, uh, patients to ask for a certificate of analysis to make sure we're not giving them some contaminants that are going to make them sick, and then you know, they're going to blame this illness or the side effects on the cannabinoids in the, in the particular product, and then we just again, perpetuate this negative stigma. So we have, to, we have to do our due diligence as consumers, practitioners, and patients um, with what product we're, we're choosing. Absolutely. I'm really glad you bring that up because it is very much also in the human world of a lot of snake oil out there. A lot of people just putting out products that don't even necessarily have cannabinoids or anything good in them. They're just some random treat, which 
you know, so definitely do your research. That's, that's so important. Um, so I'm clearly not from the veterinary world. And I just wanted to ask the question, what do I not even know enough to ask you that you think is important for people to know about this subject? Um, what do you not know enough about? Most so things. I, <laughs> um, I, I think some of the top questions we get all the time um, in the veterinary space is certainly about dosing. Um, okay. and, and that can be a little bit tricky because um, each animal, uh, depending on the, the health of their endocannabinoid system, uh, is going to react differently to, to different products and different ratios of uh, cannabinoids in these particular products. So dosing can be tricky. Um, and um, we also have to take into consideration the disease process that the, the patient might be going through. So things like anxiety, you know, I may dose at much lower um, dosages compared to something like cancer or really bad seizures in a pet. So being able to have the conversation with your veterinarian um, and uh, I guess it's not so much on your side of things, but finding a veterinarian that understands cannabis and how to use it appropriately um, is going to be something that I, I would tell pet owners to really research. Um, again, going back to the stigma and bias against cannabis products, most veterinarians, even though they may know a little bit about it and they can start the conversation, you're still going to hear a lot of, oh, I can't talk about that, I can't recommend this, or I'm going to pretend to not know anything about it because I'm scared, of, I'm scared by these biases I've been ingrained with. Um, yeah. So I guess more so for the clinician and not necessarily for yourself. Like you should be able to go to your practitioner and have these kinds of conversations, but the way things have been going, which is changing slowly, uh, but surely, um, you know, that's the challenge is, is finding a practitioner that's, that's willing and able to, to talk about this particular um, treatment method. Definitely. So just for good measure, besides getting maybe too high, which we talked about, you know, the psychoactive element, are there really any bad side effects to CBD or, or hemp in animals? Sure. So some of the things that we do see, and I wouldn't necessarily call them bad, um, when an animal... Um, ingests a large amount or maybe they're they're first starting on a particular cannabis or hemp product we may see increased lethargy um and again depending on on the issue on the condition that may or may not be a, a bad thing um the other thing that we have seen in some of the studies um is diarrhea uh, related to uh, ingestion of these products and that's really going to be dependent on, on what is the carrier oil? Um, is this carrier oil novel to your pet that's been only eating a certain type of dog food uh, or, or cat food for a long period of time? So is that going to cause GI upset? Um, or is the particular treat or little chew that it's in going to cause ups 
mindset. So I can't necessarily relate it to the CBD or the THC or the specific cannabinoids in there, but maybe what it's, it's made in. Um, the other thing that we see in the literature is an increase in the ALP, which is a liver enzyme. And that's something that we, we can test for um, in animals before and during cannabis treatment. But what's important to note about that is even though we're seeing an increase in this liver enzyme, we are not seeing increases in other liver enzymes, which would suggest the liver is not happy with you. So even though we may see this increase in the ALP and maybe your less experienced uh, veterinarian uh, starts to question it, they need to look at the whole picture and the whole health status of the animal because even though we're seeing this increase in this particular value, we're not seeing increases in other values, which would be a warning sign for us. Um, and other than that, I can't think of anything else that, that we are seeing in real life or that's been mentioned in the literature. I mean, obviously, you know, if we're doing talk studies and we're giving 1,000, 2,000, up to, I think, 9,000 milligrams per kilogram of THC in some of these studies, we're, we're not seeing any of those negative side effects. So, um, you know, that's, that's also a point of interest for a lot of, of pet owners is they're not seeing some of the negative side effects that they would see with traditional non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or phenobarbital for seizures or whatnot. Yeah. So as far as efficacy, you know, maybe we need a little more research, but as far as side effects, it's uh, probably not going to harm your pet. (laughs) So that's good to know just for peace of mind. Um, Well, I don't know. That's, that's all I've got. Do you have anything else you want to add? Yeah. I think the one thing I would add that I probably should have put in there earlier was um, when your animal is on particular medications, uh, and you want to have this conversation with the vet, even if you assume that they are not going to understand or want to talk to you about this, this method of treatment, it is really important you tell your veterinarian that your pet is going to be on a cannabis or, or hemp product just because there is always a potential for drug interaction. Um, it is, again, not something that we see a lot of in veterinary medicine, just like we don't see that in human medicine, but it is something to be cautious about, and we, we should inform our, 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 our animals veterinarian uh, that they are on these things that could potentially have a drug interaction. Very good information to have. Um, well, Stephen, thank you so much for your views and your insights into this industry. It's really fascinating and I'm excited for everybody to get this information. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you. Have a great one. You too.